Hello and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger. If you think bitterness is a negative attribute, I know today's episode will surprise and inspire you. We're talking about how incorporating bitter elements into your food and drink can not only make food taste better, it can actually make a big difference to your well-being as well. Here to explain why and how is Guido Masse, a clinical herbalist and founder of the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, who also serves as the chief formulator at Traditional Medicinals, where he works on research, development, formulation, and education for herbal teas and supplements. He's also the co-author of the book, DIY Bitters, Reviving the Forgotten Flavor. Listen and be amazed. Guido Mazze, thank you so much for being here. It's such a joy to talk with you. I had the opportunity to meet with you one-on-one and, and really have such a great conversation. So I'm really glad to be able to introduce you to my listeners here. So welcome. Ellie, thanks so much. It really is an honor and I thoroughly enjoyed our, our conversations in the past. Yeah, I walked away learning so much so from you. So I'm super excited to talk about your one real good thing, which is embrace bitters for flavor and health, which I think is something it never occurred to me really how incredibly healthful that can be. But before we dive into that, mm-hmm. I would love for my listeners to learn more about you. So please tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a clinical herbalist. Okay. Well, what a cool career, by the way, I have to say. You know, I, I wake up most mornings and I just wonder how I got so lucky that I can work with plants and amazing folks like yourself on a daily basis. But um it was a little bit of a circuitous road to get here. I was born and raised in Italy and really as a kid exposed to a lot of herbal medicine as well as foraging. You know, we'd go out and get mushrooms, we'd go out and get berries. And if there were some elderflowers or some gentian roots on the way, those would end up in the basket too. And at the time, you know, getting up at five in the morning to find the good mushroom spots, I wasn't too thrilled with my dad about that. But when we eventually moved back to my mom's place of birth, which is Kansas City, right in the heart of this part of the world, um, it took me a couple of years, but I started missing all of those routines and rituals and foraging trips, as well as the sort of elderflower tisane or the digestive bitters that ended up being on our table most of the time as I was growing up. At the same time, you know, as a teenager, I was starting to develop an interest in a couple of different threads that seemed to me to go in two different directions. One was chemistry and biochemistry and human physiology, which is beautiful and intricate and amazing. And the other was sort of fairy tale folklore and mythology. And, you know, we've always been taught that one is sort of more left-brained and rational medicine, and the other is more like a dreamy and ethereal folklore. But in herbal medicine, I found the art and science that brings those two threads together beautifully. And when I made that discovery, I was sold. Um, That was, you know, at this point over 30 years ago, and I really haven't looked back. I ended up in Vermont in the late 90s, where we started our first medicinal herb farm and garden, started processing extracts. In 2001, I was one of the founding members of one of the first free herbal clinics in this country, Um, started taking on apprentices a few years later, and worked with businesses along the way, um, as well as developing my clinical practice, working one-on-one with folks just to help them 
understand in this wide sort of sometimes confusing world of supplements and herbs, what might be most important and relevant for them. And, you know, like you said, simple things like one addition of dandelion root into your daily routine can make a profound, incredible difference. You don't have to understand all the biochemistry or learn 10,000 different plants to be able to be an effective herbalist. Simple addition of dandelion root as a digestive bitter can really have a profound influence. So now this story has brought up so many questions for me. First of all, is foraging quite common in Italy? I mean, is this something that people in the community were doing or is this are typically doing or is this something that your family just was into? You know, I think that in general, there is a lot more foraging and also sort of small container gardening um, in Italy than I see in the United States. Even folks who live in cities, you know, they like having potted basil, geraniums, and even like a tomato plant, even if all they have is the front stoop to grow these plants on. But I was lucky to um, spend a little bit of my childhood in the Alps. And there we have sort of more wide open spaces and we have really old rhythms of people and land that bring folks up above the tree line, you know, looking for different plants and foods. And while we definitely don't engage in these activities as much as we might have, you know, 150 years ago, it's definitely considered like a fun weekend thing to just go out strolling and gathering stuff and come home and cook it and eat it together and tell stories of your favorite mushroom spots. So long story short, there is a lot more foraging. Um, and the line between foraging for food and gathering medicine is somewhat blurry. Um, so you see this great sort of harvest basket that has all sorts of stuff in it, some of which we would consider food, a lot of which we would consider medicine. So you also mentioned the word tisane, which I think maybe people don't know what that is. So I just want to clarify the difference between, so that's, as I understand it, so correct me, of course, you're the expert here, but it's a brew of uh, flowers or herbs as opposed to a tea, which is from a particular plant called yeah. Camellia sinensis, right? Generally speaking, when most folks refer to tea, we tend to think of like black tea or green tea. And as you said, those are the leaves at various stages of growth of the Camellia sinensis plant, the tea plant. Um, we nowadays, when we talk about herbal tea, we extend the definition of tea a little bit. And so, you know, people talk about chamomile tea and, and it's totally appropriate, right? What tea means in this context is that you're taking a botanical and you're steeping it in hot water just off the boil for a period of time, usually three minutes, sometimes all the way up to half an hour. So another and, word for herbal tea is tisane. That's right. And so in Europe and, you know, the, the literal Italian word for herbal tea is tisana. Right. So that's just something that I grew up um, using as a common word. Whereas when we talked about drinking black tea, we would say te, which is the Italian word for tea. Um, when we talked about chamomile or elderflower, we would say tisana. So if you were sick, you would go have an elderflower tisane um, as opposed to a cup of tea, even though technically elderflower tea is still an appropriate way to refer to that infusion. Gotcha. So, well, we can switch back and forth as we're talking about now that people know what we're talking about. But I also really appreciate so much your, I personally appreciate this merging for you personally of the art and science of what you're doing, because I personally feel the same way. I came at nutrition from a very science. I was a biology major. I was a pre-med major in college and majored in nutrition because I love food. 
And now for me also, I feel like this incredible merging of the science of nutrition and the science, all the, the various sciences of that merging with the art and science of cooking and food. So I, I'm totally on board with that. I, I get it completely. Um, so we're here to talk about bitters, but let's talk about first a little 101 on what bitter, the taste bitter mm. is and, and how it's essential to flavor in general, because I think mostly people think of bitter as being something negative, but it actually is not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, if you just were presented with something super bitter, like a little bit of quinine bark, which is the bitter ingredient in tonic water, um, you would kind of run for the hills with that sort of fire hose of pure bitterness in your mouth. But as you point out, Cooking, though we understand a lot of the science behind it and the nutrition behind it, is also an art. And so the bitter flavor, when it's incorporated into an artfully prepared meal, what I've consistently found is that it gives it that food depth of flavor and it gives it almost a satisfying quality. Um, I don't know, like a, a, a bite or a something you can really dig into from a flavor perspective. Whereas, you know, some of the spicy notes or certainly the sweet notes um, give, you know, um, reward and satisfaction and interest. Bitterness grounds that experience, makes it more real and again, more satisfying. So that doesn't mean that you should eat, you know, purely bitter foods. Um, a great example is just a dandelion green um, or a radicchio leaf. These are both bitter greens and they're both incorporated into salads and taken alone, they feel a little bit too much if you're just chewing on raw dandelion greens. But if you add just a touch of oil, the little bit of sweetness from say a balsamic vinegar and some salt or even better, some shiitake mushroom powder or something that has that salty, savory umami quality, the balance of the bitterness and umami all of a sudden creates this new synergy on your palate and it feels full, it feels rich, it feels satisfying. So bitterness is often sort of maligned, like you say, but when used in judicious quantities in combination with other flavors, it gives depth, it gives satisfaction, and I think keeps people coming back for more because it is so satisfying. And sometimes they don't even understand why that is, but it's because there's this subtle bitterness kind of at the foundation of that bite that they're experiencing in their mouth. Now, yeah, it's like, it's like we need the contrast, really. It's the contrast that it provides and it bounces all, all the different taste elements bounce off of each other in that way. Totally agree. Now, from a biochemical perspective, the bitter flavor itself is perceived by our brains through these receptors called bitter taste receptors on our tongue. And we have a range of different receptors. Some are for saltiness, some are for that umami savory flavor. Um, we certainly have receptors for sweet. We have receptors for sour, right? Um, and we have these bitter taste receptors, which are by far the most complex. And they're attuned to over 120 different molecular types from the natural world. Um, that's how we experience the bitter flavor when we taste those dandelion greens. The compounds inside the dandelion triggered the bitter taste receptor to send a signal to our brain. And boom, that signal goes off and says, wow, there's something bitter here. And is our brain then saying poison, poison? <laughs> because well, I think from what I understand, like that's really the mechanism on some level. You're absolutely right. And even though the bitter flavor from non-poisonous herbs like dandelion can really be sort of a, a way to make the meal more satisfying and balanced, as you said, um, we think that the bitter taste receptor exists as a defense mechanism. 
essentially. And we're animals that have, you know, a pretty sophisticated digestive tract. We have these detoxifying organs, including our liver, that are able to neutralize a range of um, compounds that might be toxic to us. But if you think about being a grasshopper or an insect that browses on plants, they're consuming 100% of their diet from bitter greens, essentially. And the bitterness in those plants retards the rate of consumption of those leaves. So it slows down the browsing from an herbivorous insect, for instance. Um, the reason that happens is the herbivorous insect has similar bitter taste receptors to the ones on our tongue, believe it or not. This is a very ancient signaling system inside animals. And when bitterness stimulus increases in excess, the insect dials down its browsing, partly because some of those compounds in plants are actually insecticidal. Now we can detoxify them completely, but that echo of protection still remains. So the bitter taste receptor functions as a way to alert us to high quantities of potentially poisonous substances. And if we were to consume truly high quantities of something poisonous, for example, um, even an alkaloid like caffeine that is present in coffee, if you take it in pure form, it's incredibly bitter. And the bitter taste receptor would stimulate a very aversive reaction as soon as you tasted pure caffeine and you would say, oh, whatever that was, no more, right? But in small quantities, what we find is not a complete rejection of the food, but a slowing down of our digestive system, an increase in all of the juices that break the food down and detoxify our food, and also a slowing down of our consumption rate, right? And that's one of the big things that I think bitters can offer to us particularly in the modern Western context, is reframing, reframing our relationship to food and our tendency to perhaps overeat. Um, one of the things the bitter taste receptor can do is really dial that back a little. And we think I mean, that's at least in part because of that connection to the poison protection response. That is just remarkable. So I just, I mean, the phrase, the dose makes the poison is just always so critical, right? Because too much water we die from, right? So that's like- right. Some things are great for us that in ex pretty much anything in excess, right, is going to kill us. So um, I think that's important to really keep in mind. And it's so interesting that many of these plant compounds developed as to protect the plant from being killed by insects, but and 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 us or from being eaten. Um, so I find that so incredibly fascinating. But I think also many of these compounds, besides being maybe many of these bitter compounds are actually antioxidizing. So these are oftentimes the compounds we want to be consuming more of that are actually helpful for us. So some may be things that our body neutralizes and others may be elements that our body really thrives on. That's absolutely right. And Ellie, you've pointed this out, for example, um, in your writing about chocolate. Chocolate is one of these foods that is fantastic, but also has an undeniable bitter undertone to it. That might be part of the reason it's so satisfying, right? It's got that fat in the form of cocoa butter. It's got this amazing, unique flavor, and then it has this deep bitterness to it. We sweeten it up to balance that, and then it's mm, the best. But that bitterness does come, um, as you've pointed out, from these compounds we would consider antioxidant or health-promoting polyphenols, for example, um, that are found throughout not only um, chocolate, but also much of our produce. The wilder the produce is, the higher the proportion of these phytonutrients and these polyphenols. But partly because they taste bitter, 
we have sort of systematically wound them out or bred them out of the produce that we find on our grocery store shelves. One of the best examples, I think, is a carrot. Wild carrots, which are the exact same species as what you find in the produce department, are intensely pungent and very bitter, whereas the stuff you get in the grocery store is kind of sweet, right, and has lost a lot of that ancestral bitterness. I don't blame us for doing that. Bitter is intense, right? And most kids, if given the choice between bitter dandelion green and a cookie, they're going to go for the cookie every time. There's very deep reward mechanisms associated with that. But I think what we're exploring and realizing more and more is just like exercise, which might not be the number one thing you want to do when you get up out of bed. It's actually really good for us. Similarly, the bitter flavor, which might not be the number one taste that you would go for, is an indicator of phytonutrient density, particularly these antioxidant polyphenols to which you refer, and an important flavor to help regulate and maintain proper digestive and detoxification function in our bodies. So perhaps just like exercise, we're going to wisen up to the fact that a little bitter in your life um, is actually really good for you as a daily habit. I am totally sold on this. Meanwhile, though, I am biased because I happen to really be attracted to bitter for some reason. I'm crazy like that. I don't know. But um, so tell us more, and you touched on it a little bit, but how can bitter impact our well-being? So it's these compounds, but then also you were suggesting, and there's research on this, which you shared with me, it's so fascinating, of how um, bitter, incorporating bitter tastes into your life, into your meal, into your meal structure, perhaps, um, actually changes and aids your digestion. I mean, I, I guess people have known this for a long time, right? We have digestifs, which are, which are uh, bitters, essentially. That's correct. So I'd love to talk more about sort of the cultural context of using bitters. Um, but to your first question, um, the bitter sensation that is mediated by these bitter taste receptors kind of goes a lot further than just our perception of the bitter flavor itself. I like to think of what bitters do, which when I, when I go through it, it might seem a little magical and, and sort of incredible, not necessarily as something that we can add to our diet. I mean, it's true, but more something the lack of which we're starting to see has profound consequences and impacts. So. You know, Ellie, we've talked about this. I think of human beings as an animal in context. We evolved in a context that was very rich in botanicals. And those botanicals were largely, as for reasons we discussed, full of bitter compounds, both to protect themselves um, and to regulate things like browsing from insects and other animals. So our digestive tract evolved in the context of an ongoing exposure to these bitter compounds and sort of created a, a detente or, or a, a balance point with these chemicals um, that at this point is no longer sort of a nice to have, but is literally hardwired in us. In the last 100, 150 years, we've both been able to dramatically increase the amount of sugar in our daily lives, which was relatively rare historically. But I think, somewhat unnoticed, we've removed the presence of the bitter flavor. And this is actually a one-two punch for digestion and metabolism. Sure, the sugar itself and its ongoing consumption can be tricky and hard to handle. 
But I contend that the absence of bitterness is even more important because if we had that bitter signal, our ability to process and metabolize the sugar would be a lot more graceful and a lot less um, disease causing than what we see today. Let me give you a very simple example. If you are your, uh, which I know you have, but if your listeners have heard of the concept of the glycemic index, this is the idea of how quickly a grain or a carb might turn into sugar in your bloodstream and cause that blood sugar spike after eating. If you consume some rice or grain um, on its own on an empty stomach, within 30, 45 minutes, you're going to see a blood glucose spike. If you take something bitter right before eating that carbohydrate, because the bitter taste receptors trigger a slowdown of food moving out of the stomach and into the intestines, and because they trigger the production of digestive juices that enzymatically break down those carbohydrates, not only do you see less gas and bloating coming from the carbs you eat because they're getting broken down by enzymes that have been stimulated by that bitter taste, you also see a reduction in the glycemic index of that grain. So if you eat carbs on an empty stomach, without bitters, you will see a higher blood glucose spike after that meal than if you consume some bitters before it. Again, I don't think this is magic. I think it has to do with the fact that any carbohydrates we would have consumed historically would have been wrapped in a strong bitter peel, right? Any starchy root would have had a lot of bitter peel, just like that carrot. And as a result, our body would have metabolized and turned that carbohydrate into blood sugar in an appropriate slow way. Now that we've removed the sugar from its bitter context, we consume it by itself. We don't have the benefit of that bitter signal. We spike the blood glucose after a meal. So this is just one example of how incorporating bitters into your life, particularly in our high carb diet, can really have dramatic impacts. But it goes a lot further than this. So when we experience a bitter tasting molecule on those receptors on our tongue, not only do we experience the flavor, but these feed forward nerve signals get sent through this important nerve fiber called our vagus nerve that connects um, all of our gut, organs, our liver, also to things like our lungs and our heart, basically all the autopilot systems of the body. And experiencing the bitter flavor increases what's called the tone or the activity along the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve then touches the stomach, touches the pancreas, touches the liver, touches the intestines, and stimulates the production of all those juices that break our food down effectively. As a result, you see less fermentation, less gas and bloating, balanced transit, right? So food doesn't spill out of our stomach um, into our intestines too quickly. And in our colon, and lower bowel, we actually see an increase in motility and the potential relief from things like occasional constipation. So it's really amazing. Bitters coordinate the movement of food through our gut. They improve the secretion of all the digestive juices that are required to break our food down without drama. And they help regulate our metabolism, things like the blood glucose spike that you see after a meal. Finally, and I find this truly fascinating. It really takes the digestion um, and the digestive system from this sort of grinding bystander, right, that just breaks our food down so we can absorb it, to this sophisticated, coordinating, intelligent organ system. The bitter taste receptor cells are not just on our tongue. They're found throughout our GI tract. And when they're stimulated further down by those same compounds that we swallow and consume, they actually secrete hormones into our bloodstream. Hormones like polypeptide Y and GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1, 
You may have heard of GLP-1. More recently, it's um, gained a lot of attention because of its um, the recent weight loss drugs like Ozempic being GLP-1-like um, substances that trigger what's called satiety or feeling of fullness, this feeling that you don't need more food. Um, you don't need to keep eating. You don't need that supersized portion anymore. What's fascinating is that bitters, um, even bitter compounds like berberin in Oregon grapefruit, have been triggers for GLP-1 since way before we even knew that these hormones existed. Bitters stimulate satiety, and they're part of that feeling of satisfaction around the food you eat, right? Um, so you're much more likely to finish a meal um, when you're full if you have bitters on board rather than continue overeating or go for that second helping of dessert. And in the clinical research that we see, when folks consume something bitter before sitting down at an all-you-can-eat buffet, whether that's quinine from, um, you know, um, Peruvian bark, or whether that's gentian from, um, you know, this particular root of gentiana lutea, an important bitter, they consume 20 to 30% less food at the all-you-can-eat buffet, not because they're starving themselves, not because they're denying themselves, simply because they feel full at the right time. And I think this is one of the biggest gifts and benefits that bitters have to offer. Well, it's just amazing. I am blown away by this, honestly. Um, so for this wonderful taste that we have, the pleasure of, of, of having the receptors for on our tongue, it makes food taste better. It increases satiety. It, it improves digestion. I mean, what's not to love basically, right? So like, let's take bitter out of this negative context. And I love just touching back on your one real good thing, which is to embrace bitters for flavor and health, because that's what this is about. So thank you for that. And now I would, would really love for you to talk a little bit about how, how we can do this then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so how we can do this in a way that's like pleasurable, that we're not feeling like we're like, you know, having to take our spoonful of medicine before, <laughs> before we eat. Um, so I think there's a lot of traditional wisdom there of how this is done, as you uh, started to mention. And then also, you know, in your book, which I love, it's called DIY Bitters, Reviving the Forgotten Flavor, A Guide to Making Your Own Bitters for Bartenders, Cocktail Enthusiasts, and Herbalists. I gave the full title there, which is a mouthful, DIY Bitters. Um, but yeah, and so you have some great uh, ideas and recipes in this book uh, for really easy ways to do this and tasty mm -hmm. ways to do this. So, so spill, spill, tell us yeah, what, yeah. what's the, <laughs> well, I mean, like you point out the place to start when you're looking at how to incorporate bitters into your life is just looking at traditional cultures. Every traditional culture around the world has acknowledged the role of the bitter flavor as an important part to the art of cuisine and also the science of therapeutic interventions, the science of medicine. So you see it in traditional Chinese medicine where bitters are considered cooling and anti-inflammatory. You see them in Ayurveda where they're um, known to stoke the digestive fire and improve digestion and assimilation. Of course, that's true. Um, you see it across Europe with the aperitifs and digestifs that you were talking about, Ellie, you know, around mealtime. And I to this day, remember like the old timers, they're like sitting and watching the TV, they're cursing at the soccer scores and they're sipping their chinar, you know, their artichoke liqueur um, before mealtime to kind of get their digestive juices flowing. You see it in Africa um, with, you know, the Maasai community, they boil bitter roots along with animal organs from the hunt and give this as medicine before sort of the feast, um, the community feast that comes after the hunt. Um, you see it in Central and South America, 
where bitter herbs, of course, are an important part of detoxification, reducing inflammation, fighting infection, and especially fevers, right? And, and this was the way that we discovered quinine was the traditional use of that Peruvian bark from the Amazon to deal with fevers, to detoxify, to cool the system and improve digestion. But you distill all of that traditional wisdom, it's actually pretty simple, okay? There's a basic template, and that means something bitter as the foundation, and you don't need much of it. Like we were pointing out, you don't have to overwhelm with bitterness. Um, you want to tuck it in there. Um, then you need something that has a personality, and that can be whatever flavor you like. Some people gravitate towards mintiness. Other people like gingery spice or some ginger cinnamon. It's fantastic. Yet others um, still like things like citrus, and you can add lemon juice or citrus peels or things like that. Um, but if you have that sort of top note flavor and the bitter groundedness, the third leg of the stool is just a little bit of sweet to counterbalance it. So that could mean honey, um, it could mean just a touch of the sweetener of your choice, or it could mean another herb, like a tiny bit of licorice root or a tiny bit of stevia leaf, if you go for that sort of thing. Right. Or a That's bit of fruit, true. like a dried fruit or fruit puree of some kind. Like Absolutely. And, you know, one of the recipes that I love, Ali, is one of yours, which is a radicchio and grapefruit salad that's just fantastic. It has the sweetness from that fruit. Of course, the grapefruit is slightly bitter, too. The radicchio provides that groundedness. And altogether, it's the three legs of the stool, sweet, personality, and bitter. So, of course, it's going to taste great, and it's not going to be overwhelmingly bitter. Now, you can have great recipes like the grapefruit radicchio salad that incorporate them into food. But sometimes that can be a little much, especially if people are just trying to get started with the bitter flavor. Um, I think it's a fantastic entry point to start with food, but some people prefer to keep it contained and to maybe brew up a, a little bitter preparation and start experimenting with that. It's really, really easy to do. Um, I'm lucky to work with a great tea company, Traditional Medicinals, where we sort of take a range of different medicinal herbs and blend them into um, tea bags. So you can just add them to uh, hot water, just like you would steep any other tea. You might make, you might call it a tisane. And so for example, you could get a dandelion root tea bag um, or a roasted dandelion root tea bag. If you prefer that sort of roasted bitterness note, um, which so many of us love in coffee, and you could put one of those tea bags and maybe a ginger chamomile tea bag. Um, along with it into the same cup of tea. Um, now, in the DIY Bitters book, I talk about a very simple recipe called the Bitter After Meals Tea that is essentially that, right? It's dandelion root, a little bit of, um, you know, ginger. And then if you want some chamomile or some mint, whatever your personality, your flavor that you like is, and just a little bit of honey as the sweetener. So easy to replicate with tea bags, get some dandelion root, get a little bit of ginger chamomile, put those together in a cup, and add some honey to taste. Then you can sip that before a meal. If what you're trying to do is prevent things like indigestion or gas and bloating, or help regulate the function of your bowel. Or after a meal, if you're trying to soothe away things like heartburn indigestion, one of the things the bitter flavor does is it, it closes the valve at the bottom of our throat, helping that reflux to kind of cool off a little bit. One of the main reasons traditional cultures talk about bitters is being cooling. So I really do recommend just a simple tea or something like that as a place to start. The other way you can go, of course, is try liquid digestive bitters. Um, bear in mind that these are often steeped in alcohol. Um, so just be aware that there'll be a little bit of alcohol. Um, but if you start with a half teaspoon or a teaspoon of that, you put it in a little water, um, you can really help um, 
control some of that alcohol bite. The last thing I'll say about liquid bitters, try and avoid some of the, um, like something like Angostura, just because it has a lot of salt in it, right? So there are alternatives there that don't have quite as much salt um, that you can find across the bitters market. And you get to experiment, you know, um, there's mole, there's citrus, there's mint, there's rose, there's spicy cayenne bitters. All of them have the same bitter foundation. All of them will provide the benefits that we discussed. Oh, it really opens up a whole new world of, of discovery. But I love your suggestion. And it's quite simple of just taking, you know, a tea bag of dandelion root and ginger and chamomile and steeping that together. And I really feel like that could be delicious iced too. I'm feeling that for some reason. It absolutely could. And the thing I'll say is, you know, you want to brew the medicinal herbs a little longer than you might your regular black or green tea, typically at least five minutes, usually closer to 10. And if you're going for an iced prep, um, you can leave it in there for half an hour, right? So if you're going to make, let's say a pint of um, iced tea, you would use one or two tea bags of dandelion root, one or two tea bags of ginger chamomile tea. You'd let that whole melange steep together for half an hour. Then you can just strain or pull those tea bags out and add ice to your pint jar, put it in the fridge, and it'll keep for at least 24 hours. Some folks would say up to 48. Well, I'm, I think I might do that today, honestly. It's sounding so delicious and good to me. And I think I'm not sure if I'll even need to sweeten mine, but um, even if I, you can macerate some berries in there or something for your iced tea, Yeah, that's a that great seems idea. like it would be lovely. <laughs> You're really inspiring me, Guido. Um, so is there anything that you would like people really, as we're wrapping up here, to walk away with today in particular? Well, Ellie, I think the the one thing to walk away with is that bitter flavored herbs are everywhere. And it's particularly the more wild ones, the ones that you might not find in the produce department, and even something as simple as dandelion. If all you do is add a cup of dandelion tea into your routine every you know other day, even if it's only three or four days a week, and you mindfully pay attention to how your belly is feeling, how your digestion is feeling, how your appetite is feeling, you'll see within the span of just a week, sometimes even less, that incorporating that bitter flavor into your diet has profound consequences on your digestive health. And you'll find that you might start to appreciate the bitter flavor. And in so doing, open up this whole world of fun, experimentation, recipes, art, that is grounded in some very real and exciting science, but that doesn't require complexity to get started. Again, something as simple as incorporating dandelion greens or radicchio into a before-meal salad or a cup of dandelion root tea for your after-meal tea. It's super simple. It's super accessible and affordable, and it has dramatic consequences because, of course, digestion is central to our well-being. Very well put. But I have one quick question. Do Aperol spritzes count? <laughs> they sure do. <laughs> oh, good. They sure do. Although, you know, you have to balance out the alcohol a little. But Aperol is a very low ethanol digestive bitter. Um, it has gentian and orange peel as its main bittering agents. And yeah, no wonder people drink it as part of a cultural routine before meals. It totally makes sense. 
It's delicious. It's one of my go-to summery drinks. I think the first one I ever had was on the beach in Sicily. So it takes me right back there. And to know that it's potentially having these benefits, but I agree. I get kind of one of them's enough for me for sure before a meal. Well, you know, and instead of using Prosecco, you can use sparkling water with Aperol. And that ends up being very, very low alcohol, sort of a a, a very low alcohol altern- alternative to the classic Aperol spritz and all the benefits are still there. Okay, I'm doing that. Thank you so much, Guido. Mase. I appreciate you being here and for sharing all this incredible wisdom. I am inspired. I'm sure my listeners are super inspired. And then just before we go, I'd love to know where we can find out more about you. Um, yeah, I am um, primarily working with this tea company, Traditional Medicinals. So you can learn more about me at traditionalmedicinals.com. Um, I also have, uh, or in the past had, a blog where I'll post tidbits on herbal medicine and the philosophy of connecting to plants and how important it is. Um, you can find that at a radical, um, that's radical like the small root, R-A-D-I-C-L-E. So it's A-R-A-D-I-C-L-E dot blogspot dot com. Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate your being here. And I know uh, I'll be making that tea today. So thank you. Thank you, Ellie, very much. I'm honored. And thanks for all the work you do. Thanks for listening. I hope you're inspired to bring more bitter into your life. I know I am. Join me next time for another one real good thing.